1: I guess if I could choose one of the most important moments in my life, I would go back to 1947 in Yankee Stadium in New York City. It was the opening day of the World Series and it was the first time playing in a series as a member of the Brooklyn Dodgers team. It was a history-making day. I was proud of that. And yet, I was uneasy in the hurricane eye of a significant breakthrough.
0: Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson.
1: And I'm Carter Roy. Welcome to Historical Figures. Every Wednesday, we discuss a different person's lasting historical impact and impression on the world around them.
0: Our audio biographies cover big lives, but we like to focus on little-known facts.
1: If you want to listen to any previous episodes, you can find them on your favorite podcast directory. And while you're there, we'd really appreciate if you could leave a five-star review. Today, we're focusing on athlete and activist Jackie Robinson.
0: Jackie Robinson was the first black man in America to cross the color line and play baseball in the major leagues, a significant achievement in and of itself.
1: But it's just as accurate to call him a leading pioneer for civil rights in the 20th century, even though he never set out to be one.
0: From his earliest days, Robinson had a defiant nature that saw him confront the racism and unequal treatment he received as a young black man growing up in the United States.
1: That nature, coupled with an impressive athletic ability, fueled achievements not just in baseball, but in three other sports as well.
0: He even became an officer in a tank battalion in World War II.
1: You could say Jackie Robinson was a soldier his entire life. And that didn't end when he finally put on a Brooklyn Dodgers uniform in 1947.
0: That was, in many ways, just the beginning. Cairo, Georgia, in 1919, was in the deepest part of the South, where Jim Crow laws segregated black Americans from the rest of society. These laws dated back to the late 19th century and harshly restricted the freedoms of black Americans.
1: Jim Crow claimed to make black Americans, quote, separate but equal. But in practice, these laws treated them worse than second-class citizens. They restricted every aspect of their public life, including which hotels they could stay in, which seat they could occupy on a bus or train, even which drinking fountain and public restroom they could use.
0: These laws also suppressed voting rights for poor and undereducated black Americans through poll taxes and required
1: literacy tests. It was into this world that on January 31, 1919, Jack Roosevelt Robinson was born. On the same plantation, his grandmother, Edna McGriff, had been born a slave, and where she and her husband, Washington Wash McGriff, returned to live after emancipation.
0: His parents, Jerry and Maylie Robinson, called their baby Jack, not Jackie, and they gave him the middle name of Roosevelt, after former president Theodore Roosevelt, who had died less than a month before.
1: Jackie was born into a rickety cottage that was already pretty crowded. He was the fifth child born to the Robinsons, joining 11-year-old Edgar, 9-year-old Frank, 7-year-old Mac, and a sister, 5-year-old Willa May.
0: To support this growing family, the Robinsons planted and harvested peanuts, sugarcane, cotton, and various kinds of vegetables on the land of a wealthy plantation owner named James Sasser. Even with so much food within reach, it belonged to the plantation owner, and the Robinsons had limited access to it. As a result, they could barely feed themselves.
1: Maley Robinson was the one who did most of the work, both inside and outside of the home. And it was Maley who pushed Jerry to negotiate for a new half-cropper status with Sasser so the family could take home more of the crops the Robinsons grew, a much more profitable arrangement.
0: However, the newly earned wealth meant that Jerry spent more time away from home. And one day, when young Jack was 16 months old, Jerry went to live with another woman.
1: this was no small crisis for the Robinsons and Sasser himself who added sexism to his treatment of strong-willed Mailey by blaming her uppity demeanor for driving away one of his workers.
0: This was an insult with dark overtones. Under more extreme conditions, being uppity, that is, thinking too much of yourself as a black person, could lead to murder by a lynch mob.
1: With Jerry's departure, Mailey decided that Cairo was not a place to raise her large family alone.
0: She later said, quote, I always lived so close to God that he would tell me things, end quote. Believing God was now directing her to take the children and leave Cairo, she started packing, ignoring Jerry, who later tried to tell her it was the devil she was listening to.
1: Maley's half-brother lived in Pasadena, California, and she remembered what he once told her. If you want to get closer to heaven, come to California. So Maley boarded a train with the five kids and headed west.
0: She couldn't have known it at the time, but she and the Robinson family were participating in the Great Migration, a movement of six million black Americans heading north and west to escape the Jim Crow South.
1: The Robinson family's life in Pasadena was more pleasant, relatively speaking. The weather was more agreeable, and there were more job opportunities for black Americans.
0: And most importantly, the extreme dangers of Jim Crow were nowhere to be seen— This didn't mean, however, that Southern California didn't exhibit prejudices all its own.
1: For one thing, Pasadena was a predominantly white community. Maley was able to find work there as a housekeeper, but other jobs were scarce. And life
0: was still largely segregated. The public pool was open to black Americans, Mexican Americans, and Asian Americans only one day a week on what the city hypocritically called International Day.
1: Adding insult to injury... The city publicly promised that it would always drain and clean the pool before reopening the next day for white swimmers.
0: The Robinsons also experienced prejudice closer to home.
1: When Maley bought a house on Pepper Street in a largely white working-class suburb, some of the neighbors quickly took offense.
0: Someone living nearby called the police whenever he saw one of the Robinson boys roller skating on the sidewalk. He said black children frightened his wife.
1: The children on Pepper Street also reflected their parents' prejudices, and one incident showed the confrontational side that Jack Robinson displayed all his life.
0: Once in 1927, when Jack was eight, a neighbor girl was shouting racial epithets at him. He quickly responded, calling her the only bad word he could think of for a
1: white person. The little girl's father heard the commotion and rushed outside. Before long, the man and boy were throwing stones at each other. On
0: at least one occasion, the threats got ugly and downright dangerous when someone placed a burning cross on the Robinsons' front lawn.
1: Robinson later remembered that his mother never lost her composure and always made perfectly clear to the family that she wasn't afraid. But she found ways to quell the hostilities, like doing chores free of charge for her wealthiest neighbor. They were
0: not easy years. Starting in 1929, the Great Depression hit the black community hard. In some places, the black unemployment rate was twice or even three times that of white America.
1: Maley worked long hours to make ends meet. Robinson later said the children saw her so little that they often knew her only as hands caressing them at night or a voice in their sleep.
0: Her employers allowed her to bring food home, But often it wasn't enough. Some meals at the Robinson house consisted of sugar water and bread.
1: In addition to these hardships, ever-present discrimination was shaping Jackie into a resentful child. In his early teens, he joined the local Pepper Street gang, a group of poor black, Japanese-American, and Latino kids who would steal from local shops, throw clods of dirt at cars, and swipe golf balls from a local course.
0: Jackie strayed from home for longer and longer periods, and his grades in school suffered. At 14, he became the leader of the gang, which led to his first run-in with the law.
1: The police caught the boys swimming illegally in a local reservoir. The sheriff forced them at gunpoint down to the station, where he interrogated them under hot lights for hours.
0: When they begged for water the lawmen placed watermelon on the floor and forced the boys to eat it while on their hands and knees. This was an overtly racist gesture, since some of the gang members were black and watermelon was often included in racist depictions of black people. As the exhausted boys quenched their thirst, the police taunted them and took photographs.
1: Not surprisingly, incidents like this fueled Jackie's resentment. In addition to illegal hijinks, Jackie went out of his way to defy local authorities in symbolic ways.
0: He resented being made to sit in the balcony at the local movie theater, so he upset white patrons by sitting somewhere down front. He also sat at the white-only lunch counter at Woolworth's until somebody finally served him lunch.
1: He kept getting arrested. In one instance, he was apprehended for having a verbal altercation with a white motorist, A local cop shoved the barrel of his revolver into Robinson's stomach to make the arrest, a moment that terrified him.
0: In spite of all this, or maybe because of it, the teenage Jack Robinson had no intention of backing down where racist police practices were
1: concerned. But Maley saw trouble in some of the decisions Jack was making, and she sought ways to help put him on a higher plane.
0: By 1938, Maylie Robinson was worried about the direction her 19-year-old son Jack was heading, so she asked Carl Downs, the young pastor of her local church, to talk some sense into him.
1: Straightening up wasn't really on Robinson's mind at the time, that's for sure. He was excelling in sports in junior college, but while away from athletics, he would fall into his old habits of pulling pranks and getting into scrapes with the law.
0: One night, the 25-year-old Downs went looking for Robinson. He parked his car near a group of teenagers in downtown Pasadena and asked if Jack Robinson was hanging out there.
1: No one answered, but word got back to Robinson, who started attending Downs' church out of sheer curiosity.
0: Reverend Downs had experienced racism in his own life and sometimes in his own church denomination, but he sought peaceful ways to confront it.
1: He emphasized in his church sermons that it was sometimes necessary to suffer in the short term to achieve higher objectives later on. This struck a chord with Robinson, who was starting to focus on his future.
0: He had, at the same time, got a stern talking to by a local mechanic named Carl Anderson, who told Robinson that gang life was hurting his mother and was beneath him.
1: Robinson left the old gang behind and made a fast friend of Reverend Downs, who became a mentor and father figure. It was a friendship that lasted a lifetime.
0: While it was the Reverend Carl Downs that gave Robinson moral inspiration, it was his older brother, Mac Robinson, that inspired him to pursue athletics.
1: 22 year old Mac was a stellar athlete in his own right, making the U.S. Olympic team and traveling to Berlin for the 1936 Summer Olympic Games.
0: We've all heard how Jesse Owens embarrassed Adolf Hitler's vaunted Aryan team by winning gold medals in the 100-meter long jump and relay
1: events. But it's less known that Mac Robinson, Jack's brother, was also part of America's triumph at those games. Mack came in second to Jesse Owens in the 200 meters and won a silver medal.
0: Mack's impressive success inspired his brother to use his own athletic skills, which could conceivably propel Jack as the next Robinson to enjoy the national spotlight.
1: When Mack returned to the U.S., he continued to struggle for employment. He had to return to work as a street sweeper sometimes laboring in his Olympic jacket on colder nights.
0: With Max's own struggle in mind, Robinson hoped that a serious-minded concentration on coaching or breaking into professional sports might be a key to his own escape from poverty. He was athletically built, just under six feet tall, nearly 200 pounds, and agile. But where could a young black man start such a quest in 1938 America?
1: It might surprise some people to learn that baseball was Robinson's worst sport. He excelled at three other sports in college, football, basketball, and track and field.
0: By 1938, the press was noticing Robinson's skills at Pasadena Junior College. And when it got around that he was looking for a major university to transfer to, it made statewide headlines. This is the time, by the way, when the press started calling Jack Robinson Jackie, the name that stuck for the rest of his life.
1: Robinson's skill as a football player struck fear in the more prominent colleges whose teams might have to face him on the field. One wealthy alum of Stanford University offered to pay Robinson's full tuition to any school that was not scheduled to play Stanford.
0: Robinson rejected the offer, and in the spring of 1939, he enrolled at the Integrated University of California in Los Angeles, UCLA. This was a decision partly influenced by his desire to stay close to his mother, sister, and brothers in Pasadena.
1: With a new sense of direction, reinforced by Reverend Downs and his family, Robinson threw himself into UCLA's athletic program. In his first year, He made all the teams he tried out for, football, baseball, basketball, and track and field.
0: As a football player, Robinson really shone. In one game against the University of Washington, he returned
1: a punt 65 yards for
0: a touchdown.
1: Fans on both sides of the stadium cheered. He also excelled on the basketball court and was made starting shortstop on the baseball team.
0: By the end of his first year, he did something no other UCLA student had ever done. He lettered in all four sports he tried out for and won the NCAA title in the broad jump in
1: track and field. By 1940, Robinson was a senior and an athletic star at UCLA. Naturally, he was turning all sorts of heads, including that of a 17-year-old nursing student named Rachel Esam.
0: Isam initially wanted to avoid Robinson. She'd seen him on the football field, and she figured he must be an arrogant person. But when she took a chance and actually spoke to him, she was pleasantly surprised. She remembered, quote, he was so humble, so thoughtful and handsome. I'm glad I was wrong, end quote.
1: And she said he was proud of his race. She said she liked that he wore the whitest shirts that emphasized his skin tone. The two began dating. She called him Jack. He called her Ray. The two later said they always knew they were meant for each other.
0: By 1941, the 22-year-old Robinson was growing restless. Near the end of his last senior term, and with his athletic opportunities behind him, he dropped out of UCLA. Maylie and Rachel Eason were both utterly opposed to the idea, but Robinson stood firm. He said he had to start thinking about supporting his family
1: in the spring he sailed to hawaii to join an integrated semi-pro football team the honolulu bears paid hundred dollars a game and robinson could augment this income working construction he spent most of that time at a site near the u.s naval base at pearl harbor
0: when the football season ended robinson boarded the ss Lurline for the return trip to los angeles it was december 5th
1: two days into the voyage Robinson noticed something strange. The crew of the lure line were painting the portholes black. This was the first indication
0: that everything was about to change for him and for the world.
1: On that day, December 7th, 1941, the Japanese bombed the island he had just left behind.
0: Robinson arrived to a U.S. mainland now at war. He knew it would only be a matter of time before he would join the millions of black men who were now eligible to fight for their country.
1: The draft notice came on April 3, 1942. And in May, Robinson reported to Fort Riley, Kansas, for basic training.
0: He excelled as a marksman, and his athletic abilities and college education made him eligible for officer school.
1: But when he applied, they turned him down.
0: Because racism was alive and well in the Army. Not only was Robinson denied a chance to become an officer, he wasn't even allowed to play on the baseball team. The coach said he would rather disband the team than allow a black man to play on it
1: help arrived in the form of a world-famous black athlete. The heavyweight champion of the world, Joe Lewis, enlisted in the army and was also assigned to Fort Riley. The two got acquainted,
0: and soon after, Lewis made a call to a friend at the U.S. War Department, which was all it took to open the door for Robinson. He was accepted to officer candidate school and graduated a few months later as a second lieutenant.
1: In March of 1943, Lt. Robinson made a trip back to California and asked Rachel to marry him. She happily accepted.
0: But distance strained their relationship. Rachel wrote to Robinson and told him she was joining the Cadet Nurses Corps. Robinson was furious, thinking she had joined the Army and would be around other young
1: soldiers. This was a misunderstanding. The Cadet Nurses Corps was not part of the Army. Robinson wrote an angry letter to Rachel, insisting that she change her mind.
0: But Robinson's fiancé was as strong-minded as he was. Rachel returned her engagement ring, saying that Robinson had no right to tell her what to do.
1: Now, Robinson would have to face the most daunting challenge of his life so far without her.
0: Our story will continue in a moment after a brief message.
1: And Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new
0: perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence.
1: And now, back to historical figures.
0: In April 1944... 25 year old Jackie Robinson transferred to Fort Hood in Texas. He was assigned to the all black 761st Tank Battalion that eventually fought under General George Patton.
1: Robinson's defiance of the racists around him had not abated with his recent graduation from officer training school.
0: On July 6, 1944, exactly one month after D Day, Robinson boarded a city bus near the base. He had just received treatment for a recurring ankle injury and promptly selected a seat in the white section. It was then that a white bus driver yelled at him to move to the back.
1: There was no way Robinson was going to submit to such an order, especially one coming from a civilian bus driver. Robinson refused to take any seat but the one he was in.
0: The military police arrived, and Robinson eventually agreed to go peacefully. When he arrived there, however the situation deteriorated.
1: Robinson overheard a white MP inquire about him using racist and derogatory language. Enraged at this kind of treatment, Robinson threatened to break into anyone of any rank who uttered that word again.
0: Using the threat of violence as key evidence against him, the Army issued a general court-martial for insubordination against Robinson. A trial took place the following month, with Robinson taking the stand in his own defense.
1: The case quickly fell apart. The military failed to demonstrate any specific order that Robinson had disobeyed, and it gave Robinson the opportunity to put on trial the use of the racist and derogatory term that he had been called, the very thing that had set him off in the first place.
0: When asked what the word meant to him, Robinson replied that his grandmother had always taught him that the word meant a low and uncouth person, and by that definition, he didn't consider himself one at
1: all. The defense produced character witnesses on Robinson's behalf and argued he was simply being prosecuted because he was outspoken and black.
0: After the four-hour trial, Robinson was exonerated on all charges.
1: Even though he was awarded this moral victory, he felt betrayed by the army. Citing his recurring foot injury and the racially motivated persecution he had just suffered, Robinson applied for an early release.
0: In November, the army agreed to grant Robinson an honorable discharge. This was just as the 761st Black Panthers regiment he might have led engaged in its
1: first battles overseas. The 761st encountered heavy combat and severe casualties in northern France and later in the Rhineland. It's interesting to note that if Robinson had actually gone to battle he may have been injured or even killed and we would never have witnessed the historic events that followed.
0: Robinson briefly returned to Pasadena. He was different after the army, older and more settled. His mother thought it might be time for him to work things out with Rachel.
1: They talked on the telephone and Rachel agreed to meet Robinson in San Francisco. When they saw each other again she noticed a difference.
0: She said, quote, "He didn't just respect me, he needed me. I saw the potential to go someplace and even take a kind of leadership role in what he did. I had no idea what the future held, but I thought there was a future, and that was important to me. end quote.
1: There was definitely a future for Jackie and Rachel. The engagement was back on.
0: In early 1945, Robinson worked briefly at Sam Houston College in Texas as an athletic director for his mentor, Reverend Downs, who was now the college's president. Within a few months, though, Robinson learned that the recently reestablished
1: Negro Leagues, as they were then called, were looking
0: for good baseball players.
1: Robinson traveled to Missouri in March to try out for the Kansas City Monarchs. They hired him as starting shortstop for $400 a month. This was a good wage for post-war America, when the dollar was said to be as big as a bedsheet and easily covered low food costs and average rents of about $2 a week.
0: But Robinson's new life seemed to give with one hand and take with the other. He had been an officer in the United States Army, and yet he and his fellow players were regularly turned away from hotels and restaurants while on the road. Sometimes they weren't even allowed off the diamond to use the white-owned clubhouse showers.
1: Robinson later called life in the Negro Leagues a pretty miserable way to earn a buck.
0: Not long after he started playing for the Monarchs, Robinson heard that the Boston Red Sox were holding tryouts for black players. Robinson scoffed at first. He knew that the team was under pressure from the city council to appear open to black
1: players. Not for one minute did we believe the tryout was sincere, Robinson said. The Boston club officials praised our performance, let us fill out application cards, and said so long. We were fairly certain they wouldn't call us, and we had no intention of calling them.
0: But Robinson traveled to Fenway Park anyway. While the tryout itself might have been a charade, there were people in the stands who took it seriously. One was a black sports writer named Wendell Smith, who had been on the lookout for talented black players for a man named Wesley Branch Rickey.
1: Ricky was the owner and president of the Brooklyn Dodgers. He was known as quite a presence in baseball. His appearance was unforgettable. He stood at 5 feet 9 inches tall and weighed 215 pounds. He was known for rumpled suits, extra-wide bow ties, and ever-present cigars.
0: The son of a Methodist minister, he believed it was his calling to address racial injustice in the United States. And the best way he knew to do that was by integrating baseball.
1: Ricky was sensing a change in the major leagues that favored his idea on integration. There was a new baseball commissioner named Happy Chandler who went on the record to say that black players should be allowed to play alongside white players.
0: This was Ricky's chance, but he knew it wouldn't be easy. He secretly sent scouts out across the country to find black talent for his farm teams. To camouflage the effort, he even created a fake negro league of his own just so his operatives could claim to be recruiting for that and not white teams.
1: In 1946, When Wendell Smith telephoned to rave about a photogenic young player he'd just seen at Fenway, Ricky wondered if he'd found the man he was looking for.
0: First, he did some homework. He interviewed friends of Robinson's back in Pasadena and his fellow players on the Monarchs. He learned pretty quickly of Robinson's sometimes volatile nature, especially when it came to racism.
1: They told him about early scrapes with the law and about the court-martial. Robinson must have seemed an unlikely choice to take up Ricky's banner for integration.
0: And Robinson wasn't even the best the Negro Leagues had to offer. He had a weak throwing arm, and then there was that ankle that kept giving him
1: problems. But it was Robinson's determined nature that attracted Ricky. This second lieutenant of the Black Panther Tank Division was a fighter, and a fighter is what the moment needed.
0: Ricky invited Robinson to his office on August 28, 1946. The two immediately bonded, not only over the game of baseball, but over their similar Methodist backgrounds. Ricky then dropped the bombshell, saying, We want you for the Brooklyn Dodgers.
1: Ricky reminded Robinson of all he would face from the stands, especially while on the road. Ricky repeated every slur he could think of. He even screamed at Robinson. Just to remind him of how it would feel. Then he said that for their experiment to work, Robinson would have to practice the age-old Christian admonition to turn the other cheek.
0: Robinson paused for a moment, then said, quote, "Mr. Ricky, do you want a player who's afraid to fight back?"
1: No, Ricky answered. Quote, "I want a player with guts enough not to fight back. They'll taunt you, say anything to make you fight." anything to bring about a race riot. If they succeed, they'll be able to prove that having a black man in baseball doesn't work, end quote.
0: Robinson must then have remembered the lessons he'd learned from his mother when she did chores for free on Pepper Street and from the Reverend Downs, who inspired his congregation with positive sermons. In what must have felt like an enormous sacrifice play, Robinson decided to fight racism by peaceful means he promised Ricky he would play ball without payback.
1: The first part of Ricky's plan was for Robinson to play on the Brooklyn club's farm team in Canada, the Montreal Royals. This would be a first test for integration and prepare Robinson for the rigors of the major leagues.
0: Ricky had also hoped to sign two other black players, but mounting pressure from sports writers, New York's Mayor LaGuardia, and even the local communist party, forced Ricky's hand. He called a press conference in Montreal with the president of the Royals and Robinson himself present.
1: Robinson won over the reporters in the room. When one asked if he was worried for his safety, Robinson said he was concerned but ready to take the chance. Quote, and maybe I'm doing something for my race.
0: The deal was done. Robinson was about to become the first black player in a league of 399 white players.
1: Also during that first fateful interview, Branch Rickey asked Robinson if he had a girlfriend. Robinson told him about Rachel Easam, the girl he loved back in San Francisco.
0: Marry her, Rickey said. You're going to need her. Robinson corresponded regularly with friends and family. His most tender letters were written to Rachel.
1: In one he wrote, quote, Last night, my darling, I thought about our love and how wonderful it is. As long as I know your love is strong, I'll make it. Together, we form a strong team, and I'm not afraid of the future at all.
0: Maybe taking Branch Rickey's advice, Jack Roosevelt Robinson married Rachel Annetta Eason on February 10, 1946. The bride wore a Saks Fifth Avenue dress she'd put on layaway for a year.
1: Robinson's mentor and friend, the Reverend Carl Downs, led them in their vows at the Independent Church of Christ in Los Angeles.
0: As Ricky foresaw, Jack and Rachel would prove to be a powerful partnership.
1: And they would soon learn together just how mean the national pastime could be.
0: The couple spent the latter part of their honeymoon at spring training in Daytona Beach, Florida, Ricky made sure Rachel got an exemption from the rules that allowed her to be the only wife at the
1: camp. The Robinsons traveled by air to Florida, but each leg of the trip was worse than the one before it. They regularly got bumped for white passengers at each connection. They finally had to settle for a bus ride from Jacksonville to Daytona.
0: They sat in the back.
1: This was a hostile testing ground for Ricky's experiment. Central Florida, at the time, particularly in the inland counties, was still a Jim Crow stronghold. On the first day of practice in Sanford, Florida, near Daytona Beach, the press followed Robinson, and the news of his mere presence stirred up local hostilities.
0: They asked him leading questions about whether he could get along with white players. Robinson was calm and polite. He said he was used to working with white people because he'd been in college and in the Army, and that he was just concentrating on making the Montreal team.
1: When asked what he'd do if a pitcher threw a ball at his head, he answered, I'll duck.
0: The first exhibition game was against the Dodgers on March 17th, and then they hit the road. Many Southern teams refused to play against Robinson. Perhaps because of the strain of facing this hostility, Robinson struggled at the plate.
1: But Ricky still believed. He said he was sure Robinson was going to be a great ball player.
0: And during this difficult time, the Robinsons were growing even closer. Rachel later said, quote, It was us against the world. We enjoyed that, end quote.
1: Opening day of the regular season saw Robinson still on the field, playing second base. It was an away game in New Jersey against the Jersey City Giants.
0: This was the day Robinson would have to show what he was capable of. And in spite of the pressures on him, he succeeded. He hit his first home run the second time at bat, and he thrilled the mixed-race crowd with a skill he became famous for, stealing
1: bases. He scored four runs that day, and the Royals sailed to a 14-1 victory. It was the debut that Branch Rickey and Robinson had hoped for.
0: The hometown Montreal fans were welcoming to the Robinsons. But fans and players on the road were every bit as brutal and racist as Rickey said they'd be. At almost every stop, racist taunts rang from the stands. Pitchers aimed for Robinson's head. Players sliding into second tried to spike Robinson's Achilles tendon with their metal cleats and this antagonism
1: wasn't limited to the southern states. Robinson called the Syracuse New York Chiefs the worst of all the teams he faced that year. A Chiefs player once came out of the dugout with a black cat and shouted, hey Robinson, here's one of your relatives. Instead of popping off at the racist remark, Robinson hit a double into left field.
0: But even though he managed to appear calm, Robinson was raging inside. He had trouble eating and sleeping, and his doctor thought he was going to have a nervous breakdown.
1: Somehow, though, his suppressed rage now seemed to fuel his performance. By the end of the season, he displayed an impressive 349 batting average, the best in the league. Not only that, he led the Royals to their best season ever, and a pennant win that sent him to the Minor League World Series on September 26, 1946. Also
0: called the Little World Series, the championship pitted the Royals against the Louisville
1: Colonels. The first three games were played in Louisville, with Robinson facing the usual insults. This didn't stop the Royals from winning the opening game, but they left Louisville down two games to one.
0: In Montreal, the Royals and Robinson roared back to life. Game five saw Robinson hit a double and a triple, and he reached home twice. In game six, Robinson hit twice more and helped lead the Royals to a 2-0 shutout. And with it came the minor league World Series title.
1: Montreal was ecstatic over the win, so much so that fans chased Robinson when he left the clubhouse. But the shouts that day were all in praise. Fans lifted Robinson on their shoulders and paraded him down Ontario Street for all to see.
0: It proved to be a season of triumph for Jackie and Rachel Robinson because in November of 1946, Rachel gave birth to their first child, Jack Roosevelt Robinson, Jr., born in Los Angeles.
1: On April 10, 1947, Jackie Robinson got a phone call, one he knew was coming. He showered and shaved and headed for Ebbets Field in Brooklyn to play a preseason game between the Royals and Dodgers. But now he knew this game would be different. In the sixth inning that day, Branch Rickey handed out a press release.
0: Quote, the Brooklyn Dodgers today purchased the contract of Jackie Roosevelt Robinson from the Montreal Royals. He will report
1: immediately. He would be paid $5,000 a year. The league's minimum, but twice what he was making in the Negro League.
0: Robinson remembered the moment this
1: way. Simple, wasn't it, he wrote. Quote, it could happen to you. The telephone rings, you answer it, and you're in the big leagues, just like a fairy tale. I went to bed one night wearing pajamas and woke up wearing a Brooklyn Dodgers uniform.
0: Robinson, or any black player for that matter, donning the blue Dodger uniform, didn't sit well with most of Brooklyn's players.
1: Writer Jimmy Breslin once observed that baseball at the time was a game for hillbillies with great eyesight. More than a third of all major league players were rural Southerners, and many of them carried their prejudices with them to whatever club hired them.
0: Brooklyn had its own share of Southern boys with racist opinions. Pitcher Curly Higby, outfielder Fred Dixie Walker, and shortstop Pee Wee Reese all were born and raised in the South.
1: Walker, in particular, made no secret of his contempt for the idea of playing alongside a black man. He prepared a petition that said the team would walk off the field as soon as Robinson walked on.
0: That effort disappeared, but some players still refused to back down. Dixie Walker and Kirby Higbee both asked to be traded. Higbee got his wish and went to Pittsburgh, but Walker was forced to stay. He was too valuable in the outfield.
1: A rebellion was also brewing outside of Brooklyn. There were rumors that members of the National League would go on strike if Robinson played. Dixie Walker was allegedly assigned the task of telegramming them as soon as Robinson stepped onto the field.
0: Nearly every ball club voted to go along with the strike. The only dissenters were, ironically, Kirby Higbee's new team, the Pittsburgh Pirates, by a vote of 13-12. to 12
1: opening day came on april 15 1947 with the dodgers hosting the atlanta braves it was the first day robinson wore dodger blue and the first time he wore the number 42. the league held its collective breath when robinson stepped on the field to play first base
0: for a less than capacity crowd that featured more black fans than ever before robinson was determined to show he measured up He did not hit that day, but he didn't strike out either. He walked, reached on an error, and scored a run, helping push the Dodgers to a 5-3 win over the Atlanta Braves.
1: And just as importantly, there would be no strike. And no big league player refused to play in any game that season.
0: Robinson's good showing continued as he rounded out the week with his first big league home run against the New York Giants at the Polo Grounds.
1: But Robinson was far from reaching home when it came to the racism he experienced. The taunts, beanballs, and targeted cleats were regular occurrences throughout the entire season.
0: And then there's the infamous Philly manager, Ben Chapman, who relentlessly taunted Robinson both on the field and when he was up to bat. The Alabama-born Chapman shouted every racist insult he could think of whenever the Phillies faced Brooklyn.
1: Chapman later said he was just doing the usual bench jockeying, shouting insults to rattle whoever was in his sights, no matter their ethnicity. Whatever his stated reasons were, his overt racism sent Robinson into a rage that very nearly exploded.
0: Robinson said he almost charged the Philly dugout with the intention of knocking as many teeth out as he could, but he restrained himself again. The only hitting that day would be bats to baseballs.
1: Perhaps the worst abuse for Robinson came on May 13, 1947, in Cincinnati, Ohio. Robinson played well, getting a walk, a single, and a run. But the racist slurs came down with such fury that Pee Wee Reese, a local from nearby Louisville, reputedly felt compelled to put an end to the abuse. He put his arm around Robinson in the infield as a show of support.
0: This simple act of solidarity allegedly quieted the crowd. The details of what happened that day are debated, but the moment has become so mythic that a statue stands at Coney Island to commemorate Robinson's bravery.
1: Rachel Robinson made sure she attended every home game in spite of the abuse she still sometimes heard from the fans around her. She would commiserate with Robinson as they left the field. But talk of baseball stopped at the front door.
0: She put it this way. Quote, the fight was outside, it wasn't in our house, end quote.
1: Rachel also gave him crucial advice when it was needed. Whenever racists started using racist epithets or making jokes about cotton picking, she would insist that her husband just, quote, shut him up by hitting.
0: And Robinson was starting to do just that. His popularity was growing with white fans as well as black. Special trains were added to railroad schedules to accommodate the crowds heading for Brooklyn's away games.
1: Among other theatrical flourishes, it was Robinson's skill at base stealing, and especially at stealing home, that made him fun to root for. Attendance increased, proving everyone wrong who said Robinson was bad for business. He
0: proved to be very good for business, and not just for the Dodgers. When Brooklyn played the Cubs, Wrigley Field sold out with its largest paid crowd in history.
1: Robinson finished the season with a .297 batting average, and he led in home runs, doubles, runs scored, and total bases. The Sporting
0: News named Robinson their first ever rookie of the year, But what may be the most surprising honor was the grudging praise that came from Dodgers outfielder Dixie Walker, who in the preseason had drawn up a petition to keep Robinson off the baseball diamond.
1: He said, quote, he is everything Branch Rickey said he was when he came up from Montreal. Joe DiMaggio up, rolling out a club down at the end. Big fella sets, hat and pitches, the curveball high outside for ball one. So the Dodgers are ahead eight to five.
0: And the crowd well knows that one swing of this bat, this fellow's capable of making it a brand new game again. Joe leans in. He has one for three today. Six hits so far in the series. Outfield deep, round toward left, the infield overshifted. Here's the pitch. Swung on, belted. It's a long one. Deep in the left center. Back for Jean Frido. Back, back,
1: back, 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 back. He makes a one-handed catch against the bullpen.
0: With Dodger sports announcer Red Barber calling the plays, Brooklyn faced their perennial rivals, the New York Yankees, in the 1947
1: World Series. This was what Robinson would call his greatest moment, the vindication of his and Branch Rickey's risky experiment, the, quote, hurricane eye of a significant breakthrough, the moment when baseball would be integrated for good with other institutions in the United States to follow.
0: It would be an even better story if the Dodgers had won that series, but it was not to be,
1: yet. Brooklyn lost in seven games, and then, as every year, the cry went up in Brooklyn, wait till next year.
0: In spite of the loss and every hardship that led up to it, 1947 still
1: proved to be a triumph for Jackie Robinson. Polls taken at the time, showed he was second only to Bing Crosby as the most famous person in America. This put him ahead of Frank Sinatra, Eleanor Roosevelt, and General Dwight D. Eisenhower.
0: Branch Rickey's bold plan had succeeded. His team was a pennant winner and very nearly the national champions. Robinson was an acclaimed member of the team, and he had played in a World Series.
1: Rickey was now planning his next black player, the star of the Negro and Mexican Leagues, catcher Roy Campanella.
0: By 1948, the pressure was off Robinson to suffer within what Ricky had called his armor of humility. He became more outspoken. He challenged umpire calls and criticized the league's lack of black third-base coaches.
1: And he played the best he had so far, leading the league in hits, batting, stolen bases, and RBIs. And he maintained a batting average that was near 300.
0: He reached another milestone, too. He was the first black player voted into the All-Stars team. Only Red Sox's
1: megastar outfielder, Ted Williams, received more votes. And yet, with all of these advances, inequities remained. Robinson and Campanella still had lockers assigned in a far corner of the clubhouse and showered separately from the white players.
0: The late 1940s were a politically charged time, and not just because baseball was integrating. The United States was in the throes of an anti-communist fervor that continued to build.
1: Robinson found himself in the middle of the communist versus capitalist debate as well. At the urging of anti-communist Branch Rickey, Robinson offered testimony designed to refute a statement made by black bass baritone singer and actor Paul Robeson.
0: While in Paris, Paul Robeson claimed that other black Americans would never defend the United States against the Soviets in a war because of the inequities they suffered at home.
1: In a very public speech, Robinson called Paul Robeson's claim false and that he and millions of other black Americans were patriots who would support their country.
0: Robinson's words received a mixed reaction from some quarters of the black community who regarded Paul Robeson as a hero. Paul Robeson himself never lashed back at Robinson, but he did heavily criticize the congressional investigation for pitting the ball player against him.
1: He had reason to be critical. Those hearings cast a cloud over the singer and eventually destroyed his career in the U.S.
0: Getting political did not hurt Robinson, who enjoyed continued success on the baseball field. The 1949 season proved to be his finest yet in spite of the fact that Brooklyn lost another World Series to the unstoppable Yankees. At 30 years old, Robinson managed to shine. He was voted MVP of the National League and led all other players in batting and stolen bases.
1: And by now, Robinson was getting the Hollywood treatment. In 1950, he starred as himself in the Jackie Robinson story, though Rachel sat that one out, making way for Ruby Dee to play her role.
0: Besides, she was busy with the new baby. On January 13, 1950, the Robinsons welcomed baby Sharon into the world. To celebrate, 30-year-old Jackie Robinson passed out cigars in Harlem.
1: 1950 also saw Robinson come into his own as a public figure, though some in the press felt he was getting too outspoken. He got into a public tussle with major league umpires, whom Robinson claimed made bad calls and threw him out of games. Well, because he was black.
0: This was also the year that Robinson lost his most trusted ally in the Dodger organization. Branch Rickey was forced out as manager and co-owner, though the two remained
1: close. Robinson must have felt the loss keenly, especially with mounting threats he'd be shot from the stands. Unrattled, Robinson continued to play and led the league by batting 400 in the summer of that year.
0: Branch Rickey's bold choice to hire Robinson had changed the face of baseball. More and more black players were hired across the league. Fans did not abandon their teams.
1: And on October 3, 1951, another milestone was reached, though the Dodgers certainly didn't see it that way at the time.
0: Brooklyn faced the New York Giants in a playoff series and suffered a crushing loss in game three of that series. But they did so against another integrated team, led by black players Monty Irvin and Willie Mays.
1: 1952 was again an unqualified success for Robinson. In spite of new physical struggles caused by a recent diagnosis of diabetes, the Dodgers won 96 games and recovered from that stinging loss to the Giants the year before. That season, Robinson batted 308 and hit a career-best 19 home runs.
0: And back at home, Rachel gave birth to their third child. David Robinson made his debut in Brooklyn in May.
1: 1952 also saw the Dodgers face the Yankees in another World Series. What do you think, Vanessa? Would this be the year?
0: No, not this year. The Yankees won again, four games to three.
1: By 1955, the face of baseball had changed forever. For a time, there were more black starting players on the Brooklyn team than white players, and the public was becoming more aware of racial prejudice in American society, with 35-year-old Robinson remaining at the visible center of the discussion.
0: 1955 also saw the beginning of the end of Robinson's regular player status. He was hitting only 256 and sat out nearly 50 games because of
1: ankle and knee injuries. In spite of that, the Dodgers won the pennant led by younger players like Duke Schneider, Roy Campanella, and Don Newcomb. They were headed for another World Series. And can you guess against who, Vanessa? The New York Yankees, again. Mm-hmm. Now, would the Dodgers ever win a series against their crosstown rivals? And would Jackie Robinson finally be on the winning team? For the 36-year-old Robinson, time for that dream was running out.
0: We'll return to our story in just a moment from the Parcast Network.
1: Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Moneymaker. Play the game and you could win money. Up to two million dollars. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. And now, back to our story. The Dodgers had already made eight attempts at winning a World Series, five of which were with Jackie Robinson. The 1955 Yankees were, again, formidable, but... Robinson and his teammates would prove to be their match this time.
0: On September 28th, at Ebbets Field, for a crowd of almost 64,000, Game 1 began, and it would see some of the old Robinson fire.
1: In the eighth inning, with the Dodgers down three, Robinson reached second on an error and advanced to third on a sacrifice fly.
0: Robinson on third base almost always promised great theater, Remember, stealing home was a specialty he made all his own. With the Yankee pitcher looking away, Robinson took the chance. He scrambled and beat the ball to the plate, stealing home for the 19th time in
1: his career. And for a while, it looked as if the Yankees might win again, with the 1955 series stretching to seven games. But this time, sports fans, the Dodgers blanked the Yanks in Game 7, winning the night and the series 2 to nothing.
0: Jackie Robinson and the Dodgers had reached the pinnacle, as Rachel Robinson put it. It was what her husband had waited so long for.
1: Robinson carried on into the 56 season not as quick as he'd been even the year earlier. He was workmanlike, doing whatever was needed. He played all over the field, including third base and the outfield. And in the
0: final game of the season, he hit the homer that helped the Dodgers claim another pennant and earn another shot at series glory. And guess who it was against?
1: Mm, The Yankees. One more time.
0: This year would be different. It was a win for the Yankees. Well, still
1: an honor to get there. And by now, Robinson already had been basking in Brooklyn honors for nine years.
0: Rumors began circulating in 1957 that Robinson was ready to hang up his Dodger blue and was waiting for an offer from the Brooklyn organization to manage the minor league Montreal Royals. When the offer never came, Robinson hinted he'd be back for another
1: season. Meanwhile, he'd secretly signed on with a New York coffee shop chain, Chalk Full of Nuts, the Starbucks of its time as vice president.
0: It may have been this final leaked announcement that made the Dodger front office, now many years without Branch Rickey, to feel its Jackie Robinson experiment had come to an end. In a move that shocked baseball fans everywhere, they traded Robinson to the crosstown rivals, the New York Giants.
1: And that made it official, at least for Robinson. It was time to bid the major leagues goodbye.
0: Robinson retired from baseball on January 5th, 1957. He was 37 years old.
1: His was a legacy few could equal. He left baseball with an impressive 311 batting average, 137 home runs, 4,877 times at bat, 1,518 hits, 734 runs batted in, and one record that had yet to be broken.
0: His specialty, 197 stolen bases. Perhaps more importantly, he paved the way for the black players who were now playing across the league, including soon-to-be greats like Satchel Paige, Willie Mays, and Hank Aaron.
1: After baseball, Robinson became active in business and continued his work as an activist for social change. He helped establish the African-American-owned and controlled Freedom Bank. And the moment he retired from
0: baseball was also the moment when the civil rights movement in America was fully emerging.
1: He threw his support behind civil rights causes, and he stood next to Dr. Martin Luther King on the National Mall as he delivered his I Have a Dream speech in 1963. In 1962, Robinson was the first black man to be inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame. In 1972, the Dodgers retired his uniform number of 42. In his acceptance speech, the first
0: non-white player to cross baseball's color line acknowledged the other heroes of his struggle, Branch Rickey, his mother, Maley, and, of course, his wife, Rachel Robinson.
1: By the early 1970s, Jackie Robinson was starting to feel the full effects of diabetes and heart problems. In spite of his fatigue, he and Rachel began the Jackie Robinson Foundation, which raises scholarship funds for minority youth. And even though he was nearly blind, Robinson kept up his speaking engagements and television interviews.
0: On October 24, 1972, nine days after appearing at the 1972 World Series, Jackie Robinson passed away from a sudden heart attack at his home in Stamford, Connecticut.
1: Over 2,000 mourners attended his funeral in Manhattan, and tens of thousands more lined the procession route leading to Robinson's burial site at Cypress Hill Cemetery in Brooklyn.
0: The Reverend Jesse Jackson gave the eulogy, saying, quote, His feet on the baseball diamond made it more than a sport, a narrative of achievement more than a game. For many of us, it was a gift of new expectations, end quote.
1: Rachel Robinson carried on the work of the foundation after her husband's passing. She also continued as an assistant professor at Yale School of Nursing, co-authored a book about her husband, and became an eloquent chronicler of her husband's story. Over her lifetime, she received 12 honorary doctorates and the Congressional Gold Medal in 2005.
0: The rest of the Robinson children garnered their own accolades. His eldest son, Jack Jr., served in Vietnam, but struggled with heroin addiction upon his return. He kicked the habit and became assistant regional director of the drug rehab center where he began his recovery. Tragically, he died in an auto accident in 1971.
1: Daughter Sharon enrolled at Howard University in 1969 to study nursing, like her mother, and later at Columbia, where she studied midwifery. She is now an author and serves as the educational consultant for Major League Baseball.
0: The youngest son, David, became involved with both civil rights and the work of the Jackie Robinson Foundation in the 1970s. Today, he grows coffee in Tanzania with his wife and 10 children and carries on his father's example of political activism.
1: On April 15, 1997, on the 50th anniversary of Robinson's first game in the majors, Major League Baseball retired the number 42 as a tribute to his legacy, which reaches well beyond baseball.
0: But perhaps a more moving tribute is Mailey Robinson's house that still stands on Pepper Street in Pasadena and Jackie Robinson Park, which is just a home runs distance away, where neighborhood children of all races play softball, basketball, roller skate, and swim. Further down the street is the Mac Robinson Post Office, Dedicated in 2000, the year Jackie's silver medalist brother died after a lifetime of working to reduce street crime in Pasadena.
1: All are gentle, living reminders that this story carries with it names like Satchel and Monty and Willie, because people like Maley and Rachel and Carl and Branch all believed in Jackie Robinson.
0: Thank you for joining us for another episode of Historical Figures.
1: A new episode comes out every Wednesday, so don't forget to subscribe to Historical Figures on Apple Podcasts. Tune in, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or your favorite podcast directory. And while you're there, leave us a five-star review.
0: You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram, at Parcast, and on Twitter, at Parcast Network or through our website, parcast.com. That's P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot
1: As always, we thank you for listening.
0: Historical Figures was created by Max Cutler. It is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Historical Figures is written by Graham Barnard and stars Vanessa Richardson and Carter Roy.